Silence, great. What's up? Good evening. It's good to see all of you. My name is James. If we've never met before, it's my privilege to speak to you this evening. Uh, this is weird. This is interesting. It's probably the first time that I've been around this many people not wearing a mask, which feels strange. Uh, I've learned some things the last couple of months wearing masks all the time. Uh, number one is that I should apologize uh, more often to my wife. I've learned that when you've got the mask and your breath is directed straight back into your nose, uh, that I have bad breath more often than I wished that I did. Uh, she's watching on the live stream right now. Shout out to her. I'm sorry, and I love you. Uh, number two is it's ruined like uh, those like social interactions you have with strangers in public where you're trying to like acknowledge them when you make eye contact on accident. Uh, but with the mask, it doesn't quite work. Uh, if, you, if you're like me, it's my go-to. If you're at the grocery store or somewhere and you see somebody, you make eye contact, you do, I do like three things in combination. It's like a smile and like as kind of eyes as I can get and then like a head nod. So it, like you're walking past somebody and you're like, like, hey, maybe not with the finger. But with the mask, it doesn't quite work. I've learned that without the, the mouth, your eyes kind of just look crazy. Uh, and so I'll do that and like I'm smiling under my mask and I'll walk past somebody and realize it's too late and that they didn't see that and they have no clue that I was trying to be kind. And so they just see my crazy eyes. Uh, masks are interesting to me. At the beginning of the pandemic when we, we didn't know they were wise yet, you'd go to the grocery store and to me it was like, uh, if you've ever seen like the movies like Contagion or Outbreak, where they do like, it's like a video and they've got patient zero and there's like bioluminescent germs and like he touches his face and then like touches Cheerios and then I walk by and touch the Cheerios and then now I'm sick. Uh, that's what I pictured it as. Uh, and so master a fun layer of protection for me. Uh, also, I, if, is anybody like a rule follower? Anybody? Usually there's two camps. There's people that are like, I love rules or you're in the back like Scroggins and you're like, you can't tell me what to do. Right? I like to live uh, in the middle of that, if that's possible. Right? Like, I enjoy rules, so I turn, uh, like, when doctors are like, don't touch anything and touch your face. I'm like, all right, it's a game now. How long can I go without touching my face? And so I, I like to bend the rules a little bit. Some of you are like, yeah, I like to do that too, but really you're just on the rebellious side of the spectrum. Uh, so let's get into it tonight. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to be looking at parables as we have all this semester. Um, this will be a reminder, maybe just for me, but I like to remind myself why we're doing this. So why, why choose parables all semester? I think the goal should always be to seek the Father's heart and his character anytime we're studying parables. And that's what we hope that we've been doing this semester. And then the second thing is why, why did Jesus speak in parables? We've talked about it before, but just like a quick review. We know by the end of his public ministry, Jesus had been challenged by the Jewish authorities countless times. Uh, and we know that when leaders of a society start to harden their hearts, it's most often true that the crowds will soon follow. And it talks about uh, in the Bible that Jesus was saddened at the hardness of the hearts of those around him and uh, that they were blind. He says specifically, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. It was because of this that he turned to parables. What he's saying there is actually, it's a super baller move. He's quoting Isaiah, 
which is, he's quoting somebody that was hundreds and hundreds of years before him that was prophesying about his coming. And he's using scripture because the Pharisees and Sadducees love to study it. Pretty baller move on Jesus' part. It's important to note that their blindness and deafness was self-inflicted. In other words, their hardness of heart meant callousness, blindness, determination not to listen or obey, or if to listen, then only critically and destructively. It's important to note that Jesus says, seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. He doesn't say, seeing they'll never see, that they can't see, or hearing they'll never understand. There's always hope. Some people think that Jesus used parables in order to keep the truth, to hide the truth uh, from these hard-hearted crowds, as if it was like Jesus saying, all right, if you, I've done miracles, I've spoken plainly, and if you didn't like that, then fine, I'll hide it in these parables and you'll never understand. But I think the opposite is true. The purpose of his use of parables was to lure them to think in order that they might find their way to the Father's heart. So tonight, we're actually going to look at two different parables in Luke. Uh, if you notice, most of the people that preach this semester, except for Scroggins, because he can do whatever he wants, have preached uh, just using one parable. But the benefit of preaching near the end of the semester is there's a lot of parables left and not enough time to preach all of them. I'm also holding a microphone and nobody can stop me. So the first one we're going to look at is in Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, you can pull out your Bible, your iPhone, your iPad. Uh, it'll also be on the screen. Let's do this. We're going to go old school. Would you guys stand with me while we read it? And you may be thinking, James, why are we standing? Is it legalism? Is it uh, because of uh, tradition? And the answer to me is that it's just to honor God's word and to show him that we think it's important. So it would be in Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 5. It says, And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend that belongs to me has rely, uh, arrived on a journey, and I have nothing set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You guys can grab a seat. So it's a super interesting parable. Both of the ones we're going to look at tonight uh, are parables that I've definitely read before, but they're so short in the Bible that often we glance over them and forget them. I think what's super important when we're reading the Bible is that context is always, always important. Context is important in a lot of areas of life, but specifically when reading the Bible. So first we're going to look at scriptural context. In the verses directly preceding this parable, Jesus teaches his disciples the Lord's Prayer. They're asking him about prayer. He gives them an example of it. 
and then immediately jumps into this parable. That should give us an indicator of his intentions. Uh, A fun side note, when the disciples ask, they say, Lord, teach us to pray. Oftentimes, when I read it, I insert another word, and I read it as, Lord, teach us how to pray. What's interesting about that is I think the intention of their heart was to, to be able to learn to communicate with the Father and be in constant communication with Him the way Jesus was. They were asking Him, Lord, teach us to be the way You are. Show us how to live the way that You live. So let's look at historical context. It's super interesting to me, uh, and maybe Scroggins, the historian in the room. But I think it's important to remember that we can read these parables and we can learn from them. Uh, You could read this in the context of our society now, and it makes sense. But it's important to remember that we aren't the original intended audience, and their culture is vastly different than our own. Uh, If you think about it, we could read that parable and it makes sense, right? If it's midnight or later and somebody knocks on your door, you're most likely not, you're going to be hesitant to go and answer it. You're going to wonder what the heck is happening. So it makes sense, but it's going to make even more sense once we look at the historical context. We know that Travelers in that area of the world often traveled late in the evening to avoid the midday temperatures. It gets super hot in the Middle East, which is why it would make sense that the traveler in this story might arrive close to midnight. In the Middle East, hospitality is a big deal. It was then and it still is now. It wasn't enough just to offer your guest the bare minimum. The goal was to present them with an abundance, to take care of them and all of their needs. And this is true today. Uh, I was blessed to be able to go spend time in the Middle East. I got to go to the country of Oman. Uh, there's a, one of the missionaries coming in a few weeks. Matt Powell was with me. I could tell you some fun stories of getting lost with him in the middle of a city we'd never been in before. But what's interesting is we were there for about two weeks, and maybe halfway through the first week, we met our friend Ahmed. And Ahmed as soon as we met him, wanted to take care of us. He drove us to all the places he thought we should see in the city, anywhere we needed to go. He took us to his favorite restaurants. He bought us food. He wanted to show us that his his people that he represented cared about us, and they wanted to honor us as their guests. And I still pray that, that someday that Ahmed would truly meet Jesus. The interesting thing as well here is that in that day, you, when you got up in the morning, you would bake enough bread for what was needed for the day, for your whole family. But it's not like today where you can save bread, there was no plastic wrap, there's no sealant, so at the end of the day, whatever wasn't used was wasted. So their goal was to just bake just as much as they needed for their family for the day. So that means that when the traveler showed up, he put his host in an embarrassing situation. In the middle of the night, there wouldn't have been any bread to bake. Maybe the yeast was still rising and it was ready to be cooked in the morning. But that means that the the host couldn't show the hospitality that he felt that he should. In the Middle East, uh, no one would knock on a shut door unless it was really important. In that culture, in that day, you'd open your door in the morning and you'd leave it open all day. And anybody was welcome, your friends, your family, guests, there wasn't very much privacy. So what that means is if the door was shut, that's a definite sign that the owner didn't want to be disturbed. We know as well that these houses were generally constructed and they were just one big room. And the room was divided into two parts by a low platform. And on the upper platform, this is where the stove would have been located. 
and the stove would have burned all night, and the family would sleep around it, huddled close together for warmth. They also often brought in animals from outside at nighttime. So if you, if you think about it, today, if somebody knocks on your door, maybe the father of the household can get up, your kids are in their separate bedrooms, they don't have to wake up. If your wife's a heavy sleeper, she doesn't have to wake up. But in this Middle Eastern context and culture, if you knock on the door, for him to get up and answer the door, the whole family's up, the animals are going crazy. It's, there's, it's easier and easier to see as we unpack the context why somebody would be hesitant to answer the door in the middle of the night. So we know that parables are meant to help us understand God's heart. So what is the structure of this parable telling us? We know that parable uh, literally means something laid alongside. It's meant to either compare or contrast two different things. Most parables show us what God is like, but this parable is showing us what God is not like. If the owner of the home, who's probably frustrated, tired, and most likely angry at his friend, the traveler, eventually lets him in, how much better will our perfect Father in heaven treat us? At the end there, Jesus says, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. So if it's a contrast, then what Jesus is trying to tell us in the parable is not that we need to pester God and continually ask him for things and knock and knock and knock as if he wouldn't give us what we asked for. Instead, we'll look at this. William Barclay says it this way. He says, this does not absolve us from intensity in prayer. After all, we can only guarantee the reality and sincerity of our desire by the passion with which we pray. That's super important. I'll read it again. We can only guarantee the reality and sincerity of our desire by the passion with which we pray. In other words, you're going to pray about the things that you are most passionate about. But it does mean this, that we are not wringing gifts from an unwilling God, but that we are going to the one who knows our needs better than we know them ourselves, and whose heart towards us is the heart of generous love. If we don't receive what we pray for, it's not because God grudgingly refuses to give it to us, but because he has some better thing for us. There's no such thing as unanswered prayer. The answer given may not be the answer desired or expected. Even when it's a refusal of our wishes, it is the answer of the love and the wisdom of God. I think the last important thing to note here is that Jesus purposely mentions the Holy Spirit to help us understand that we should be asking for things that keep us close to the heart of God and for the Holy Spirit to be our helper. We'll see this same theme uh, in the next parable we're going to look at. What's interesting to me is that when I was trying to decide what the Lord had for us tonight, I was looking at lists of parables, uh, and I chose these two parables separately. I marked down, okay, study that one, okay, study that one. And as I went back to study them in depth, I realized that they were more alike than I originally thought. So had I chosen one or the other, or in this case, both, I think the Lord is trying to show us something. So we'll jump ahead. That was Luke chapter 11. We're going to jump to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. Uh, will you stand with me again? Let's do it again. Make sure you're awake. <laughs> In your Bible, it may say the unjust judge, or it could be called the helpless widow. There's several different titles depending on your translation. 
But we'll start in chapter 18, verse 1. He says, And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. He said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice, so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? You guys can grab a seat. So again, let's look at the context. In the chapter right before this, Luke chapter 17, Jesus is telling his disciples what will happen when he returns. And it's not necessarily explicitly stated, but it's implied that judgment will follow his return. He speaks of the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and the days of the future. There's nothing new under the sun, is what the Bible tells us. In all those times, men were eating, drinking, marrying, buying, selling, carrying on with their lives as though God didn't exist. Now, the timeline's not set for sure. There's no time stamp in the Bible. But it seems as though we can assume that Jesus is giving this parable almost directly after that passage that we just looked at. Uh, If you had Scroggins' incredible spiciness graph, you'd see that Jesus was almost to peak spice because just a few chapters later, he enters Jerusalem. The opening to this is super important. It's one of the only two times that Jesus directly states the reason for the parable before he speaks it. We see there in Uh, Chapter 18, verse 1, he tells them to pray and to not lose heart. Other translations say to pray and not faint. In other words, we are to be in constant communication with the Father so that he can help us remain faithful to him. That's where we're going. He's given us a picture of the parable before he's even spoken it. Historical context is important here as well. Again, the parable makes sense without historical context, but it'll make even more sense if we learn that in this time period, almost all ordinary Jewish disputes were taken before Jewish elders, which means that they wouldn't be in a public court like we're talking about here. That tells us that the judge was most likely a magistrate appointed either by Herod or maybe by the Romans. The fact that this judge is corrupt probably points us to Herod, who was the king of corruption. These judges were notoriously corrupt, so much so that unless you had money or influence to bribe your way to a verdict, most likely you wouldn't ever see your case settled. The people of that day called them robber judges. It says that the judge neither feared God nor respected man. It's interesting that that shows me he doesn't fulfill either part of the great commandment. We know in Matthew 22, Jesus says, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and the first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So we see this judge doesn't fulfill either one of those. 
He doesn't fear God and he doesn't respect or love men. We know that being a widow in that day meant that you were basically on your own. It's a patriarchal society, so if this widow doesn't have a husband or sons to take care of her or provide for her, she was destined to live alone with no means of provision. The widow in the Bible is often the symbol of all who are poor and helpless. We see that the judge gave the widow justice for no other reason than his own selfishness. It says that she was persistent, and the judge was worried that she would beat him down with her continual coming. Other translations say, lest she weary me. Uh, Literally translated, it means she was going to give him a black eye. This man is literally so worried about himself that not only does he not want the annoyance of this widow coming to plead her case in the court every day, he's afraid that eventually she'll be so upset that she'll physically attack him. Like the first parable we looked at, this parable is intended to be one of contrast. So you can follow on the screen, we'll look at the contrasted things. We know that the widow represents God's children. In the passage, the widow was a stranger to the judge, but we are close to God. The widow didn't have open access to the judge. She didn't have any way uh, to bribe or to entice him. God's children have open access to God. The widow did not have an advocate. We have an advocate, a continual intercessor, a high priest. The widow had no helper. We have the Holy Spirit. The widow came to a court of law. More importantly, we come to a throne of grace. The widow pled out of her poverty. We plead from the perspective of God's plenty. The judge was unrighteous, and we know that God is perfectly righteous and just. The judge gave justice because of his own selfishness. God gives us justice because of his character. So if this selfish judge brought justice, why so often do we not expect that a loving and perfect father would bring justice for us? God is a perfect judge because he's bound by the sanctions of his character. There's things that he won't do because they would deny the truth concerning himself, his righteousness, his holiness, his justice, his compassion. There's two things to note at the end of this passage. It says that God will give justice to his children speedily. And it's easy to read that uh, and think of that speediness in terms of our own concept of time. Uh, One of my favorite things to think about is uh, the concept of time as as it involves God. It's important to note that though God chooses to operate within time, he's not bound by it the same way we are. Uh, I had a small group one year uh, that was filled of people that were much smarter than I am. Uh, my friend, one of them, uh, one of my friends was a, f- a physicist. The other studied math. All of them more smarter than I was. And almost every small group ended with us uh, devolving into discussion about space and time and how it, uh, and how God interacted with both. I'm a huge nerd, so I love space. Okay. I, uh, time travel is also super interesting to me. I'm super excited for us to go back to the moon in 2024. And if you're thinking, James, that's stupid and it's not important, I wrote a unfortunately long thesis to prove why you're wrong. Uh, I would be happy to give you the bullet points afterwards. But the point is this, that God's not bound by time the way we are. Thousands of years are nothing in the light of eternity. So maybe... 
Stay with me. Just maybe it's possible that God understands the timing and the future events of our lives better than we do. He ends by saying, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? It's a callback to that previous chapter. When Jesus returns, will he find us faithfully and continually walking with the Father or living our lives as though there was no eternity? So the question that raises in my mind is what happens when we believe that God isn't truly just? Without a perfect judge and without the truth of the person of Jesus, we're left with the best that humanity can come up with, uh, which just isn't good enough because of our sin and our selfishness. There's an incredible song by a band uh, called O Sleeper, which is a hardcore band. Uh, Most of you probably wouldn't enjoy the music, but I'll tell you this, I love hardcore music for a lot of reasons. Um, One is that I think that you haven't lived until you feared for your life in a mosh pit, okay? Uh, I could tell you some fun stories. And two is that when you've got somebody that's a lyricist, that's writing lyrics, that loves Jesus, it's really difficult to ignore truth when it's being screamed at your face, okay? So he wrote this song, and this song is, uh, it's a concept of what it's like to live in a world without God, what it would look like without a perfect judge. And I won't sing it to you, and I won't scream it at you, I'll just read it to you. It says, Well, if all that remains is our avaricious wit, then an eye for an eye is the only law that can exist. So don't use your romance to soften defeat and trophies of war to boast of your feats. You failed and you failed because your body is weak and you'll never be as strong as you dream to achieve. What if we're wrong? What if we're not all alone? What if we're lost and we missed the whole point of it all? He's not pulling any punches, and what he's getting at is what's true uh, of our generation. It, it sounds terrible to live in a world where we believe that God isn't just and there's no standard of truth, but that's the world around us. Our generation is marked by moral relativism, uh, and I would love to do a 10-part sermon series on why that's stupid, but we'll do this. We'll look. Our friend Watchman Nee points something out in that passage we read. He points out that there's a third character that most people overlook. We know that we're the widow and the judge represents God, but what about the adversary or the oppressor? There was somebody that that was oppressing the widow that she wanted justice from. We know from the context that anyone who would oppress a helpless widow is evil. So even now, The devil is trying to deceive our generation into believing that God won't bring them the justice that they deserve, that he's not as good as he says he is, that the only way to bring justice into a humanistic world is to allow everyone to decide what's true for themselves. Both of these parables we've looked at should lead us to the same conclusion, that the heart of God is to care for his children graciously and justly. Jesus is using both to call us to prayer. He notes it before both parables. Not a self-centered, useless prayer, but a constant communion with Jesus. The more time we spend with him, the closer we get to his heart 
the more we understand the right things to ask for. Jesus showed us and he showed the disciples in the Lord's Prayer when he said, Thy will be done, thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. See, I believe that we're called to be standard bearers of truth, bringing the reconciliation of Jesus to a lost campus. I think that living our lives faithfully serving Jesus should be the catalyst that sends other people on a search to learn about his character. In the same way that Jesus used the mysteries of the parables to, as a catalyst to make people think, so should it be that if we live our lives with Jesus at the center, there should be people around us that are yearning to understand the man that we know, to know his character and to, to know him better. I'll invite the band back as we move to the close. But I think there's some questions that we should be asking ourselves. The first question, uh, and all of these questions are questions that I have to ask myself. Number one, have I been faithful in prayer? Am I doing what Jesus is giving us a perfect example of in both of these parables? Am I in a constant communication with Jesus? Am I, uh, am I spending the time that he deserves and just like we saw William Barclay say, what are, what are the things that I'm most passionate about? What are the things that I am thinking about? Those would be the things that I pray for. Do they match the heart of God? Secondly, have I been asking Jesus for the right things? Am I asking selfishly out of my own desires? Am I asking for things because I think I need them or I want them when I believe I should have them? Or am I trusting that God is just, that God is merciful, that he's gracious, and that he has things that are better for me than I could ever imagine? To me, this is a big part of my story, was learning to trust Jesus with my future. Like I said, that just maybe the king of the universe, who understands time better than I do, knows what's best for my future. Another question would be, what have I been doing with the time that's been given to me? We know that we are bound by time. It's one of the only resources that we can't get back. So what do we do with the time that's been given to us? Have we wasted it on things that were foolish, on things that were selfish? When Jesus returns, will he find me faithfully waiting? Or am I living as though eternity doesn't matter? Am I just like those men in Noah's time, just like the men in Lot's time, am I living a life devoid of Jesus, devoid of caring for the souls around me? And lastly, am I a standard bearer of the truth to a fallen world, or do I care more about what people think of me than I care about their souls? Do I care more about what people think of me than I care about their souls? Would you stand with me? I think what would be good for us tonight, I think what the Lord has for us, is that we would just spend some time. I'd invite you to come to the altar. There's plenty of space. We've got all sorts of uh, space in this room. You can make a chair your altar. But I think what we should do is take a moment and ask ourselves those questions. Uh, I know if you're like me, which you are, because unfortunately we're all fallen, 
then one or more of your answers to those questions aren't going to be the answers that Jesus is looking for. So let's take a minute. Let's allow the Holy Spirit to put his finger on things. The band will play quietly, and then we'll come back together in a moment. But let's take some time and seek God's heart.